And we're live. Hey, everyone. It's uh, David Barnett. It's good to be here. Uh, today, I've got a special guest, author Jeff Morrill. And, you know, before I introduce him, let me open the show. Welcome to Small Business and Deal Making. My name is David Barnett. We talk about buying, selling, financing, growing, and preparing to exit your small business here on the channel. And uh, come here if you're looking for information, ideas, and thought-provoking opinions. Be sure to sign up for my email list and hit the like button, please, even if you're watching the replay. Everyone who hits the like button helps us tweak the YouTube algorithm so that the show gets out in front of new people. So without further ado, how are you doing tonight, Jeff? I'm doing real well. Thanks for having me on. I'm excited yeah. to, to spend some time with you. No problem. I, I'd i like to let everyone know uh, how I met you um, because it, you've got a talented publicist because she emailed me and she said, hey... Um, I'd like to send you a free book if you'd like to read it. That's great. And that's basically all she said. And here is the book. It's called Profit Wise. And I accepted the free copy and I read it and I really liked it. And so that's why I decided to have Jeff on the show today. Um, before we get into the content of the book, though, I'd like to let everyone have a little bit of an opportunity to get to know who you are and your background. So why don't we start there? I, I, you know, I've, I've told everyone in the promo that you owned a car dealership. Why don't we back the dial a little bit further back into history and find out what led you up to wanting to get into that business? I was thinking when I was in school that I'd do something in public service. And when I graduated from college, the, the economy wasn't particularly favorable for finding a job. And, and my political science degree was not in high demand <laughs> at that time. So I ended up looking for jobs that would actually be available to me. And I had volunteered as an intern for a politician in Virginia, Lieutenant Governor Don Beyer, while I was in college. Got to know him. He's a fantastic guy. He's still in public service. He's a, a congressional representative now in the U.S. House in the 8th District of Virginia. In any case, he, uh, he didn't have any jobs for me in his very small Lieutenant Governor staff, but he did own a Volvo dealership. And okay. he needed a service advisor, that person that, that greets the customers and writes up the paperwork and, and dispatches the jobs to the technician. So that's how I, I got my start. It was, it was completely unintentional. As it turned out, it was very serendipitous for me, though, because I really enjoyed it. And I like cars. I've always loved cars. I was the kid who used to set up matchboxes on my mom's linoleum kitchen floor and, and imagine that someday I would... I would uh, have a whole lot of, of cars. And sure enough, the, the day the day would come that that happened. So it was completely accidental. But I think the, the point I want to make that might be useful to, to your audience, uh, for those who aren't in business yet, is, is to make sure, particularly for younger people, that whatever you do professionally, it doesn't have to be what you grew up thinking you wanted to do. Mm. But it should be something that you like doing. Because if you like doing it, it won't feel so much like work. And then like me, one day you'll wake up and after four years of doing that, I had acquired enough understanding, just barely enough of the skills required to run a dealership myself. And, and had I not really enjoyed it, I don't think I would have been able to, um, to absorb as much as I did if I was just phoning it in and punching a clock. So, so tell us about that. And so you realize after about four years of working at the Volvo dealership that you liked this business and you wanted to go and find a dealership of your own, uh, how did you go about looking for one? So there was no internet back in 1998, but there was a publication called Automotive News. Still exists. Right. You can look at it on the internet or they actually still send print, print copies out. And there's a section in the back, it's just classified ads. Perhaps this is available in every industry where if you wanna sell a dealership, you can list your dealership for sale, just like you would list a boat or a home or whatever it is. And I just made a few calls every day. Most of them were not returned because mm. the, the people selling their businesses, you know, my brother and, and I went into business together. I was 26. He was 31. They were thinking these guys, you know, barely have a pot to piss in. They don't have any business buying my dealership and I'm probably just going to waste a lot of time. But anyway, yeah. we found a couple of guys that were really desperate. They'd take anybody to sell their business to because they had, they had bought a, a Subaru dealership outside of Boston. And in April, I lost half a million dollars between April and August and needed someone desperately to buy it. Not so much because their the assets were particularly valuable because they had signed a three-year lease. Yeah. And so they had 
20, whatever that is, some, however it is, it's a, I guess two and a half years left roughly on the lease. And it was going to bankrupt them personally if they didn't find someone to take on the lease. So, so that's how we got into it. And, um, and um, yeah, so that's it. And so when you, when you and your brother arrived, I, I would imagine there on day one, it's just the two of you. Um, how did you go about, you know, getting underway? Because eventually you grew it into a, quite a successful business. The neat thing I, I really only understood looking back on this, uh, I'm reminded of, of something that a novelist named E.L. Doctorow said about starting a novel. And I think it applies to a lot of other things, not just starting a novel. But he said that it's like driving in the fog at night. You can only see as far as your headlights, but you can make the whole trip that way. So we weren't even clear. We had never opened a dealership before. I had been in one for, for four years, but I didn't know exactly what you needed to do when you walked into a building and there were no lights on and uh, there were no phones. And But we just we just started making lists of everything. We knew we needed phones. So, yeah. so we had a small team of people that we that we gathered quickly and and one person started started using uh using a cell phone we did have cell phones back then to um to try to get the phones working and we got the power working and it, you just keep chipping away at it one of the mistakes i think that that entrepreneurs make and um, maybe to some extent even entrepreneurs who who are undershooting their talents and abilities is that they they don't understand that it's really so much about putting one foot in front of the other i've mm -hmm. met a lot of people who want to be business owners and i've asked them well what are you actually doing to move closer to that, you know, have you um, have you bought a book on it? Have you talked with someone who owns a business in that industry to learn about what it would take to start? You know, have you made a spreadsheet to get some idea of what the expenses are, the insurance, the labor costs, those kinds of things? And they haven't done anything. And and I don't I don't think it's really too much harder than just just getting started and making making one step and then another. Well, yeah, I'm, I'm glad you brought that up because I've, I've been involved in uh, starting businesses and I bought a couple over the course of my years. And, you know, in, and in the business I run today, all of them have required me to do a lot of work uh, and to actually get things done and be organized, et cetera. Um, and so, you know, it, I, I've run into this as well, where, where I've met people who will, I'll even take it a step further. They'll, They'll, they'll buy a bunch of books or they'll get a bunch of resources on on looking for a business or starting a business or how to buy a business. But the the fundamental behaviors that are required to actually make progress on the path, like, you know, getting your finances in order and saving money and figuring out, you know, how to make yourself credit worthy and all this kind of thing. Those are the things that, that get delayed. And so let me ask you, when you guys first started, you, your brother, a small team, um, what were the work days like to get up enough steam to actually start selling some cars? Well, as I said before, the, the dealership that we had bought was losing about $100,000 a month. Yeah. So, so just to get to break even, we were going to have to radically shift whatever they were doing. And so one of the things we knew, we were going to have to reduce our personnel expense compared to what they were spending, which meant my brother and I were going to have to wear a lot of hats. Mm -hmm. So we were just prepared to work seven days a week for as long as it took. And I think we worked seven days a week. I don't want to exaggerate it because entrepreneurs love to you know, talk about the early days. It was probably about six months. And then the next 10 years, it was six days a week mm -hmm. for 10 years. That was the harder part. Seven days a week for a sprint. I mean, it got old, you know, it was like uh, Groundhog Day every day. It's like you knew exactly what you're going to be doing. You're going to be waking up in the dark to an alarm clock that rouses you from sleep and going in. But but I think that's that's one of the things that I encourage people that are interested in business, that they're prepared to to uh, to think about if, if that really makes sense for them, depending on their life stage. I don't know if I had had kids that that would have been a very responsible decision on my part. It was what was necessary given the the business we bought. This wasn't a side hustle. You know, this wasn't something that we were just going to kind of ease ourselves into over time. We had to jump in with both feet because it was just a, it was a major business and we had to borrow a few hundred thousand dollars for working capital and then several million more for the cars. 
So we were perilously leveraged. This wasn't something that we were going to do on the weekends, you know. And I, I think that's just something that that we were prepared to do. And 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 I've seen businesses fail with people who who want the lifestyle, the the lifestyle of a mature business, but but they want it too early. Mm. Yeah, yeah, I, I, I hear what you're saying. Um, in, in a car dealership, there's a mix between selling cars, both new and used, and the service work. Can you give us an idea of just how much work had to get done every month before you even got to that point where you started to make some money? Just so people have an idea of just how far behind you start when you're in a business that has a significant overhead component to it. Yeah, this was 1998, and uh, I have some PTSD from those early years, and maybe I've tried <laughs> to purge purge the knowledge. But it seems like when we opened, it was going to take about 60 cars a month for us to break even. Hmm. So, which is two a day. And the dealership that had been in business wasn't quite selling that many, but their expense structure was quite a bit bigger than ours. But what was nice, and I guess you get this when you buy a franchise. Um, in our case, we had, we had a, and what I mean by that is when you buy a franchise, you have the track record of other people that you can look at to, to mm. dial in your spreadsheet, your pro forma plan. And in our case, we knew exactly what it, we had, we had uh, data on that location for about five or six months, what they had done, what they had spent, how many cars they had sold, what kind of advertising budget was required. So we knew what it was going to take. And, and we knew that, that a heroic job would just be break even. So we went in very realistic. I mean, we we didn't go in thinking that that somehow this was going to be easy street because we understood that that the, the business was in very poor shape. But we were okay with that because we always looked at it long term, and we were young enough. Remember, we were in our twenties. I I'm now forty nine. The thought of of committing myself to the next ten years of of six days a week is just terrifying, and I, I I'd never be willing to do it. But I well, was then. Well, well uh, you guys were with were selling Subaru cars. Did Subaru were they able to give you anything in the way of like benchmarking data or anything to sort of give you an idea of how you sat compared to other similar sized dealerships? Reams and reams and reams of data. Yeah, which is helpful. Again, I don't think of the automotive business as a franchise in the same way that I think about McDonald's and those kinds of things. But we're actually in an industry that's known as franchised retail automotive. So they are franchise stores. I mean, that's what they are. So that's one of the benefits you get. Had we opened a flower shop or something on our own, then who knows? I mean, I don't know <laughs> what kind of numbers you have. But but the, the numbers are so detailed that we got you know exactly what, what um, comparable dealers in our area were earning per vehicle, what they're generating gross profit and, you know, what the average number of labor hours on a service repair ticket were. I mean, it's, it's whatever numbers you wanted, you could get. Now, um, you talked about how when you got in there, you reduced the cost structure that the previous owners had. Um, but from reading your book, I seem to remember that you did a lot of effort too and try to increase the sales. Um, would you like to expand a little bit on some of the big decisions you guys made as far as how you were going to position yourselves in the community as far as marketing and helping yourself stand out a little bit? Dealerships have a terrible reputation, and they mm -hmm. did in 1998. Maybe it's a little better now. But our vision was always to offer the alternative to the typical dealership, which generated our slogan, your undealership. And your undealership isn't just a marketing approach, although we do try to promote that idea publicly. It's also a, an operational philosophy. I mean, we we want to make sure that that every touch point at the dealership is a little different. And, and there are so many examples I could give you. you know, traditional business cards are, are landscape, and and ours are uh, whatever that portrait. Like we actually mm -hmm. rotated our business to cards ninety degrees, and we have dogs in the showroom, which we started very early. So we're looking for ways to to uh, differentiate ourselves from from the, the shenanigans that the typical dealerships do every day. So if you think about it, once you have that vision, once we've defined that reality for our company, a lot of things fall into place. That will like we we intentionally looked for salespeople that had no experience because we knew if we were going to provide an experience that was different than the typical dealership, we couldn't mm -hmm. be hiring the retreads. Yeah, and from other dealerships. You know, we had to start from scratch. 
with motivated, intelligent, hardworking people who who kind of saw the the wisdom of our approach, and then and then give them the the skills to to ask the right questions and help customers along the along the way to buy cars. You know, even even today, I can tell you that uh, here where I live, there are probably three or four car dealerships, and and if somebody opens the door to someone in the room to start complaining about one of those three or four, they'll go on and on and on and on. It's like the, some of the things you talk about, I think still exist. I remember I once bought a car and part of the deal that I had worked out with the salesperson was that I was going to get uh, four new winter snow tires thrown into the package. And when I went to pick up the car, the salesman wasn't there, the snow tires weren't there and it was missing from the contract. And the business manager was saying, well, you just sign it. We'll take care of it Monday. And I looked at him and I said, I'm, I'm not new. I just, I left the papers on his desk. I said, I have the salesman call me when the tires are here because I knew exactly what was going to happen because that's the kind of thing that happens at car dealerships. Yeah, it's very common. And that gave us our in, I think, yeah. to, to, um, to distinguish ourselves. It's one of the challenges that small, medium-sized businesses have if you're a plumber how do you convey to prospective customers that they should do business with you instead of another one? Or if you're in landscaping, you know, it, it, there's in some ways they're commodity services. You can buy a new Subaru at, uh, depending on how far you're willing to drive, let's say 40 minutes from downtown Boston, there's probably eight Subaru dealerships okay. within 40 minutes of Boston. So, and we all sell the same cars. I mean, it's, I mean, we have different used cars, but it's basically the same inventory. So, so that you really need to find that way to to give customers a reason. And, and one of the things I think that, that we've tried to do too is uh, we have a pretty progressive clientele with Subaru and they appreciate things like businesses that are doing their part to minimize their environmental footprint. They appreciate um, expansive hiring, the sense of including people in the industry that have traditionally been excluded like uh, women and uh, LGBTQ, LGBTQT uh, members of the population, that kind of thing. So, so we found that those those values, which come very naturally to us, when we can when we can share those values with prospective customers, that they, they find that appealing and want to do business with us. And that what's interesting, I want to just put a fine point on that is it has nothing to do with cars, right? I mean, it's like we're in the car business, but. But a lot of things we're not we're not spending a lot of time talking about where the cheapest place to buy a car. We're mm -hmm. talking about the kind of place where it's a great value. You're not going to pay too much. I mean, we might be a hundred bucks more. I don't know. We might be a hundred bucks less. But but you're sure going to enjoy the experience, and you're you're going to know that the money that you're spending, whatever's left of it for profit for the company, is going to be going to be spent wisely. Well, and, and that's something I wanted to bring up too, because in your book, you talk a great deal about hiring and you talk about um, how you made a decision to have a more diverse and inclusive workforce. You mentioned just a moment ago how you would look for people that had the right enthusiasm and motivation, maybe if they didn't have car dealership experience. Um, can you kind of lay out for people how you started to see um, this more diverse workforce becoming a, a real measurable strength for the business. I should start my, by saying my brother, my brother's gay. So my, mm -hmm. my partner, my business partner, John. And so it wasn't legal, like gay marriage. We, we think it's such a resolved issue in many communities now that we don't really think about it. But, but at the time in 1998, it was still legal to be married for a man to marry another marry, uh, man in, in some states illegal to adopt if you were gay. I mean, there's, it was pretty, pretty regressive and, and we've, we've come a long way since then. But anyway, what we found at the time is that we could find uh, really high quality people that, that um, had been rejected by other workplaces mm. solely for stupid reasons. And so our first sales manager that we hired um, early on, he was gay and had been fired by another dealership when it was when it was discovered that he was gay. He was really good, and there's no reason he should have been fired. But we never would have had a chance at him had he been straight because he just would have kept his job at this other business. So what we that was sort of our wake up call. I, I see the same thing in terms of I'll give you an example with women technicians. This is a shocking statistic, but it's true. In, in the United States, 
only 1% of automotive technicians, the people who are actually turning wrenches on cars, are women. 1%. They, you know, women comprise 50, 51% of the population. So the industry is really missing out on a lot of talent. And what we found is that we weren't going to hire women and, and tap into that talent pool if we required a lot of experience because there are right. enough people already doing it. You know, if, if you if you run an ad looking for five years of experience as a, as a technician, almost by definition, you're going to you're going to end up with with all men. Our service manager, Krista, calls female technicians unicorns. They're known to exist, but you never find one. So we had to we had to make our own. And um, we so that's uh, one of the ways we did that is we created an apprentice program. Okay. Schools aren't turning out enough uh, enough people to be technicians, and and it, it it was a way for us to break through that limitation that there weren't already a lot of people doing it. And so, there's no reason that that many other businesses can't do that same thing. You know, whether it's plumbing or landscaping, I mean, you can train people to do these things. Well, it's interesting because I had a conversation about this last week with someone who was complaining that they were having a hard time finding qualified people in their industry. And that was one of my suggestions. I said, well, what, what does training look like? And can you maybe sponsor someone to go through training or maybe loan them money to go through training that could be, you know, worked off over the course of time as they work for you? That would create a relationship where, you know, they might be stickier, they'd be less likely to leave. It kind of reminds me of, of the military, you know, with their programs where they'll educate people, but you got to stay in for a few years. Is that the kind of thing that you're talking about with the, with the technicians? Yes, exactly. And I love the example it used with the military because I think about how the U.S. Navy spends many years training the, the fighter pilots who fly the F-A-18s off the decks of those aircraft carriers out in the ocean. But the people who actually launch them with the steam catapults and the, and the people who load the, the uh, explosive ordnance onto the wings of those aircraft before they get flung into the Great Blue Yonder, the U.S. Navy qualifies many of those positions in less than a year. And I think it's just a really good example of how an institution that has good systems can find capable people and impart skills to perform very hazardous and responsible positions in a relatively short amount of time. And that's the philosophy that we go by. It's a long-term play. I mean, it's not like you, you bring an apprentice technician on and within six months, they're pulling engines out of cars. I mean, and we, we've been doing this since 2016 is when we started it. We have people that just started with us. They've been, they're just getting now, those people that just began with us now, almost five years later to master status. I mean, that's, it's a long-term play. And I think a lot of companies are just not willing to invest in the training resources or they're afraid that people will leave. And they do. I mean, we haven't kept all those technicians, but our assumption is that if we give them a, a if we believe in them, and we give them the skills that, that there will be some loyalty there. And, and we don't need to keep all of them for the program to work. Um, so, you know, this, this leads into the next topic I wanted to bring up because in your book, you go at length about, you know, some of the, the processes that you ended up discovering as far as hiring people and, and your philosophy and methodology behind letting people go when you've had to do that. Uh, would you mind expanding on that a little bit? Are you talking about what we call conscious unhiring? You know, <laughs> when, we have to, when we have to um, send someone on to their next workplace? Yeah, yeah. yeah. A very good way to look at it. Yeah, we we work really hard, and, and we discuss in the book, and we can talk about it or not today. We have a pretty rigorous, straightforward hiring process that we use. And, and by rigorous and straightforward, I don't mean that it's um, – terribly lengthy. I mean, it, but it does have some steps, but we invest pretty heavily in making sure we bring the right people on. And, and so we don't find ourselves too often with what we call mishires. Um, it, it happens, but our, our thought is that if we invested all this effort, bringing the person aboard and they had what we determined to be the qualities they needed to succeed with us, if they're not succeeding, we really work hard to see if there's some kind of retraining or, or investment on our part that we can tap into whatever it was that got us excited about hiring them in the first place. So it occasionally happens that we give someone every opportunity, we work with them, we retrain them, we spend lots of one-on-one -on -one time, 
and they just can't get all the pieces together, that happens. You know, our hiring process doesn't see the future. Sometimes we've probably brought people aboard that just just never had uh, a real hope for ever working out with us. But we don't just fire them. If if you lose your job at, at Plant Subaru at one of one of or any one of our other companies, it's it's not because we didn't give you every opportunity to succeed, and it's not because we we um, we didn't take our responsibilities to you seriously. Uh, I'll remind everyone who's watching, please help me out. Give me a like with the thumbs up button. Uh, it really does help with the YouTube algorithm. Um, so, all right. So let, we're talking about team here. And what, what I'd like to draw everyone's attention to, Jeff, is that you and your brother bought this business. You are co-owner with him. Uh, not We don't have to get into the details of your ownership structure or anything like that. But at a certain point, you decided that you didn't want to go to work there anymore. And so you are still part owner of the business, but you don't work there anymore. And I, I talk a lot in many of my videos about how people are wearing different hats. And we sometimes have to stop and think about which hat we're wearing at different points when we're making decisions. So your situation sort of highlights the fact that people have an ownership hat on or an investor hat. You had a hat on doing the management role that you were doing when you were there every day. When you started off, you probably had the salesperson hat and, you know, snow brush off the car person hat and every other kind of job that you can think of um, at the dealership. And so tell us a little bit about, you know, at, at some point you probably had to make the decision to start to make sure that you were building a robust organization, that you were creating those job descriptions and, and org charts and making sure that people knew what the responsibilities were so that you could withdraw from all those different categories that you were in. Can you tell us a little bit about, about when you started to realize that this was important and how you chose to prioritize it? Because one of the things I hear very often from business owners is they don't feel they have the time to do that kind of work, which of course is an investment that begets more time down the road. Yeah, I mean, it's that expression about how you're so busy fighting alligators that you don't have time to drain the swamp. And and I guess the point is, is that you just have to figure out a way while you're fighting all the alligators to spend a little bit of time every day <laughs> draining the swamp. And ultimately, as an entrepreneur, your job is it's much less about the cars that you sell or the grass that gets cut in the case of a landscaper or the use the plumbing example, the pipes that get replaced or fixed or, or whatever it is. You're a systems builder. I mean, mm -hmm. it's it sounds so boring and and prosaic and like tedious because many of us get into business because we really like what we do. You know, I know tree cutters that just love to cut trees or plumbers that love to go out on jobs. And, and quite frankly, I used to love working with customers to sell cars. You know, I just thought it was fun talking with them. And it was a, a chance for me to get to know. I just have an inherent curiosity about people. And it was a chance for me in the context of talking about a car just to get to know what made people tick. And I found that really interesting. But I couldn't spend too much time doing that because to do so would have been neglecting the projects that were much more important to the business and all the people that depended on me making good decisions, like all the people working there. So fortunately, early on, I realized I wasn't going to be able to work the way I was working forever. I mean, I, I mm -hmm. kind of figured that out quickly. And I understood that I needed to find uh, a, a person or a small group of people within the company that I could grow over time, not instantly. Because remember, I imagine I'm in my early 30s. I don't need to be retired in my 30s. But I'm just thinking, all right, there may be a time when I'm not going to be wanting to work this hard. So so my brother and I identified a few people, and uh, not all of them are still with us, but, but there are a few that that turned out really well that we invested a lot of energy in, in terms of uh, making sure that they were included in important decision-making that we did, that they were introduced to important vendors in the case of like our Subaru dealership or our Jeep dealership, that they met the, the, uh, the executives from those companies when there were, when there were meetings and those kinds of things. So over time we invested and, and I think it's really important. I want to put a, put a real underscore on this or a bold, bold print that, it's it's so important that that business owners continually update their own software. Hmm. You're right. When we first opened, I had to wear every hat because we couldn't afford. Like we even we even emptied our own trash cans because we didn't want to spend the fifteen hundred dollars a month or whatever it was for a custodian. Like we just 
We just knew we had to do it all. But the mistake would be to not adapt to the changing circumstances as the business grows. And that's what happened to me. Eventually, I burnt out. And what triggered that, that decision that you referenced earlier, the reason why now I'm five or 600 miles away from Boston, I live in Charlottesville, Virginia, is, is I just couldn't go in anymore. I, I, I truly burnt out in, in classic entrepreneur fashion. And my brother and I worked out an arrangement where, where he was happy to keep me involved. Um, and, and that just made much more sense than the alternatives. It's it, it's it's great because um, I'm I'm glad that you're sharing this because um, when I talk about the big reasons why small businesses go up for sale, um, the most common reason I ran into uh, when I had my business brokerage office open was people would come in and it was the burnout and fatigue and boredom. Uh, I kind of lumped those together, where they just they didn't want to go in anymore because it wasn't fun, and sometimes people would try to put on a brave face with me or, or get excited about me getting me excited to go find a buyer. And I, and I always came back to this one question that would help them know that I understood what was going on. I would simply ask, um, if, if your cell phone were to ring right now, who would you be more afraid of a customer or your employee? Um, and they would just, you know, realize immediately that, that I was seeing right through what they were trying to talk about. And it's, it's, I've seen so many people get to that point and, the fact that you had built some degree of, of systems and organization in your business gave you this option, um, which a lot of entrepreneurs never get, which is simply to remove yourself from day to day, uh, leave the job of working in the business, but you know you still have that ownership interest and uh, probably talk with your brother about board level type things and decision making from time to time, I would imagine. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm still, you know, involved sort of at the level that I feel comfortable with, which I like because what that that what you described over that burnout, I describe burnout. I define it as when the job that you have is no longer putting the energy back in your tank such that that it's taking more energy out of you than it's putting back in. Mm. And and that's what happened to me. And and so what what I've what I enjoy about my situation now is that I can I can lean in when I'm when I'm more interested in a particular project and I can lean back out when I'm not. Like one of the things that really wore me out was just the general human relations dimensions. I, I don't want to say that I didn't like supervising people and being part of the dealership family because I, I, I would say that it's it's my number one professional achievement in terms of the one I'm most proud of was gathering this team together. But Oh my gosh, is there a lot of heartbreak and, and uh, difficulty? We have uh, over a hundred people now among our businesses and, and it's just, it's just, it can be really tough. And so it was, I have a person who's really good at that kind of thing now and, and better. I mean, not, not only is it not me and relieving me of it, but he did, he's just so much more patient and understanding and compassionate. I was so grumpy and and worn out that I couldn't give people the love that they needed. Hmm. I, I see some people putting some questions in the chat, which is great. Jeff and I are going to get to those in, in just a couple of minutes. Um, Jeff, uh, the book, um, Profit Wise, um, you want to give us a little bit of the of the reason why you made the decision to to go ahead and write this book. I I think what what we're talking about in the book is really it's an unconventional thought. I think most people think about business that you have to be like really ruthless to earn a good living. Mm. And, and my point is, is that there might be, I, I don't know about being ruthless because I'm just not, I don't know whether that's a good way to do business or not, but, but I do know from, from 21 years now of experience that being not ruthless can be very profitable as long as you make good decisions. And, and the, the thesis of the book is that if you're wise about the investments you make in all of the stakeholders that depend on your business, which include your team, it includes your customers, it includes members of the community, it, it involves the earth in terms of your responsibilities to, to make sure that you're not polluting and those kinds of things. By taking care of all those stakeholders, you can build a stronger business that benefits the stockholders. So we very rarely have decisions that we have to make at the company between doing the right thing and making a profit. They just go together. Mm. 
Mm. And the example I used is I'm very proud of, of our, our ability to bring women into the, into the industry, for instance, because they're terribly underrepresented, particularly in the mechanical part of the part of the, in the service department. But that, that didn't cost us anything. I mean, if, if anything, it's actually made our business stronger because we're tapping into a talent pool that our competitors are missing. So that's the, the thesis of the book. I, I, don't, I didn't think that would make a very interesting book to, to hammer that point home beyond one chapter. So I got one chapter on that. The rest of the book is how you do it. It's how you implement it in terms of hiring and those kinds of things. Uh, I, I think it's a, I think it's a great message be, um, you know, and, and I'll echo your statement. Um, I've, I know some ruthless business people and, uh, I was actually chatting with someone around Christmas time, a lawyer here in town, and he was talking about putting together a contract. Someone was going to be doing business with one of these characters. And, and my, the first words out of my mouth were really, does he know about that guy? And the lawyer said, oh, yeah, that's why it's a 120-page contract instead of a 30-page contract, right? And so there, there was just something they needed to do with that guy, but his reputation preceded him, and everyone is very careful about dealing with him. And, you know, if, if you do business with someone and they come and they do business with you and they become wealthier for it, if they earn money out of the deal, well, the next time they have an opportunity to come and do business with you, they're going to they're gonna run right over and do some more business with you. Because they're gonna, they're learning that you know doing business with you is good for both parties, and they're just gonna want to look for ways to do it again. Uh, so I'm a big proponent of making sure that you guard your reputation, but that it's a reputation of of being like an honest and fair person that people want to do business with. In the internet era, in particular, too, that there's so much transparency in terms of people's ability to find out about you. You know, if you're involved in lawsuits, you can Google those. Even in terms of the the third party rating systems like like Google and Yelp, which are terribly frustrating to, to any business owner when you get that unreasonable person that gives you one star. But but those send signals to prospective customers. And and we have, you know, not every one of our reviews online is five stars, but but I think if you go to any of our businesses and you read the reviews, yeah, there's going to be a few of those hotheads that'll just never get it. But but the large majority will will go into really flattering detail of how mm -hmm. their experience buying a car at one of our retail businesses is so different than than the prior negative experiences they've had. So so I'm I'm right there with you. Great points. Let's uh, let's see what everyone else is saying here. We've got um, Linwood uh, Leverett was in the room before we even started, said he was looking forward to the talk. Good to see you here tonight, Linwood. Um, Sujit came and said, figured in my mind, still the 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 grammar um, detail oriented person in the uh, in me made up uh, made me look up success porn. Looking forward to this connect. And of course, that was one of the things I used to pr to promote tonight's show. As I just said. You know, if you've been watching nonstop stuff online about how great business is and how easy it is and how profitable it is, uh, come and join me talking with Jeff because he'll give you an insight into what um, it really looks like to build and work on a business and get it to the point of success. We, you, we had mentioned, actually, you had mentioned briefly about knowing people who try to taste the, you know, success lifestyle too soon. Why don't you touch on that a little bit? Because... I know I've met people who who probably bought an expensive car way too early. It's it's something that a lot of people get sucked into. Yeah, I guess if if you don't have a realistic understanding of what it's going to take to build a business, then you get trapped into thinking all this money coming in is profit. And and mm -hmm. in the cases that I'm referring to, they're they're businesses that have a lot of cash flow. But just because a lot of money is flowing through a business doesn't mean that that there's a lot of net profit available to to um, either buy smart things or dumb things. In our case, I, I'll give you an example. So imagine this: there was a, a year early on. With the, I, I forget when it was. We made a million dollars in the business, right? And you say, "Wow, I'm a millionaire." <laughs> and then and then you look at it between state and federal taxes, that takes almost half, right? And and my brother and I needed to live on some of that. We weren't living in any way that was extravagant, but but let's say we were living on $50,000 each during that time. So that's 100. So there's 400 left. Now, at 
we at any given time, we have about $10 million in debt because of all the cars on the lot. And do you know how long it takes when you have $400,000 left after a million dollar year to chip away and build equity in your business? It happens. It's just the reason why most of the old people, I mean, most of the rich people, you know, are old <laughs> because unless you inherit it, it just takes a long time. I mean, with the government taking half every year and yeah. you've got to live on something, what's left just isn't a lot. So it was so frustrating. We had, we had so many business opportunities in our first 10 years when we had, when we had the, the passion and the energy. There were dealerships that came for sale at, at very affordable prices that we wanted to buy, and we just didn't have the money. You know, to buy to buy an established dealership is a is a seven figure prospect, and you know when you're saving net a few hundred thousand dollars a year, it just takes a while. And if you're one of those business owners that's making a few hundred thousand and spending it all on fancy cars and and uh, expensive private schools for your kids and all that, I mean, there's just there's just nothing there to do anything with. Well, and and I'm glad you brought that up because uh, one of the things that I talk about often is that businesses have liabilities that don't appear on their balance sheet at all until, you know, you file a tax return, for example. You know, often we don't we don't see those. You can look at a balance sheet and think you're in a much better position, um, but then as you click over the next accounting period, boom! Now you owe some money. Yeah, I th yeah. Go ahead. Sorry. So. Uh, Kevin, who's down in uh, Central Florida, says, good evening, regular viewer. Hey, Kevin, how are you? Um, Tactitus1979 gives us a thumbs up and wants to know, Jeff, do you use a, a screening test of some kind, like a personality test when you were doing hiring? We use a process that we developed by making mistakes over a long period of time. It does not involve like a Myers-Briggs type indicator or a Colby test or anything like that. We don't, we've never used those, never relied on those. I wouldn't discourage anyone from doing it. It's just something that, that we didn't think was, was uh, providing us a lot of signal value about whether the person would be successful for us. So mm -hmm. if someone's, you know, in the case of the Myers-Briggs type indicator, you know, it, one of the first character in that is introvert or extrovert, the E or the I in that four letter indicator. And, and we have very successful extroverts on our sales teams, very successful introverts. Like it, it just not particularly relevant to us, but what we do do, and you can find some of these scripts on jeffmoral.com, my website, we actually posted the tools, many of the tools we use every day is that our inner interview scripts try to get at those qualities we've identified that are necessary for the position. So I'll give you an example in the case of um, being a salesperson, we're, we're less likely to look for, for something like being a smooth talker. In fact, that kind of turns us off. We'd prefer a smooth listener. We're looking for qualities like conscientiousness. Are you able to return a customer's phone call? Because you'd be amazed that in the case of salespeople, how many very personable, hardworking, motivated, likable people just cannot get organized enough to do the job. So we have questions to try to surface those qualities in people during the during the three interview process that we use. Oh, that's great. That's great points. Um, we also got another comment, uh, laugh out loud, gross versus net. Yep, uh, that's, that's true. That's what Jeff was talking about. Phantom income. And uh, Paul gives us an amen, likes the, the message that you're sharing. We got a, a question here from David. You had to turn around an existing company performance and culture. Any thoughts on starting a company and laying the foundation for setting up the culture you want? That's a great question. How would uh, you like, do it from scratch? I mean, you, you had turnover and everything. So I think it didn't take long before you had probably a whole new group of people. Did it? Yeah, we selectively hired a few of the people that were on the former dealership that weren't part of the, the collapse. So I think that's a, um, you know, in, in our case, it was not, uh, it wasn't, we were starting from scratch. And I think that the beauty of starting from scratch is that you can define reality your way. And that, that term defining reality is something I talk about in the book. It's a term 
that I obtained from Max Dupree, the uh, former Herman Miller CEO, who talked about how important it was for a leader of a company to es establish what the ground rules for life are. <laughs> what I mean by that, who are the people who are going to be, uh, who are the kind of people we're going to hire? What are our values as a company? What are the things we're willing to do? What are the things we're not willing to do? Questions like those are so important for a, a new business to work through and understand. Once you understand that, everything kind of falls into place. And, and I'll give you an example of that in the case of hiring. I mentioned earlier that, that we are very open to including talented people who had not had a lot of opportunities in the automotive industry. That was something we wanted to do. And that was informed my by my brother's experience as a gay man and, and facing that kind of discrimination. So once you understand that, that that's going to be part of your company DNA, then that makes it a lot easier to write a recruiting ad because mm -hmm. the recruiting ad, and we have examples, you can visit planetsubaru.com if you want to see ones we're running now, or I have examples at my website too, where it's an advertisement. We try to reach out to the kind of people we want to hire and, and communicate directly with them about the values that we want them to have. And and that that's a lot easier when you've done the done the thinking ahead of time. I think a lot of companies, they just, they just open up. It's like, we're going to be a plumbing company, but they haven't done the, the deeper thinking. And it's not a huge project, but the deeper thinking about what's this business going to do beyond just padding my personal bottom line. What are the values that, that we want to see in society? How are the, how are we going to differentiate ourselves from all the other companies out there? That kind of thing. And just a couple of points I'd like to add there is, is when you have a vision or mission or a, a group of things that your business can believe in and that the team can believe in, it's easier for people to then get a validation and a sense of pride from doing their part in that organization, even if their position may normally be considered, you know, not that exciting a position, you know, um, there's the famous story about the janitors in the hospitals, you know, the ones who think that they're just custodians, you know, have a hard time at work every day. The ones who realize they're fighting infection by making sure everything's sanitized, they have an easier time having a great deal of pride in what it is that they're doing every day. Um, I know I've been through a major company culture shift. Um, when One of my first careers out of university was with the Yellow Pages. And when I joined, it was run by advertising people. And we had a firm rate card and every ad was sold based on the value that it would provide in bringing customers in. And some of our leadership and sales trainers would say, we don't sell an ad for a year, we sell an ad for a decade. Uh, you know, it's the, the value has to be there, the customer has to understand why they're buying it, and it has to be the right program that isn't gonna make their phone ring too much if they're too small a business, they can't handle it, or not deliver enough business for them. And so, I learned about those values and the reasons why we did what we did and about how we were helping business grow. And then we were bought out by a private equity firm. And all of a sudden it became about next quarter. And in, and they introduced a bunch of discounts and promotions and they wanted us to say, hey, why don't you try color this year? We'll give you a discount if you add color. And what would happen is the whole organization became very short-term thinking, very transactional. And of course, a lot of those people who added color just to give it a try when they were asked to pay full price didn't want to pay full price because the foundation of understanding what they were buying wasn't there. And it was shortly after that that I left. But I think what you're talking about here, Jeff, sort of comes back to that idea of are you going to be thinking about next quarter or are you thinking about the next decade? You want to build something that's going to have a momentum that's going to move forward and continue to pay dividends because, you know, in the case of cars, I mean, what's a repeat customer look like? Someone who comes every four or five, six years to come and see you? Yeah, yeah. And in services, maybe twice a year. Okay. But here's yep. the thing, you know, you start adding in like like one customer to us is, is um, you know, if they send their, their friends and their family members and you can end up, I mean, and we certainly we have families that have, that are probably in the, are responsible either directly or indirectly over the years for 25 or 30, 30 vehicles purchased. And then of course, you know, we don't service them all or maybe every time, but, but a lot of those service too. So a single customer that, that has a good experience can be very valuable. And, and that's part of our reality is that we want to make sure that, that we appreciate every person 
beyond just their economic value, but just as a, as a human being in need of a particular product and service. And, and if you believe that and you create a, an organization that rewards people for, for recognizing that, then, then over the long term, you're going you're gonna to build a pretty strong business. But as you pointed out, private equity in particular, very focused on, on squeezing the bucks out quickly. But it's something I never really understood because like I mentioned I, I opened a business in my 20s. I, I didn't, I mean, I needed to earn a living in my 20s, but I knew I'd own it in my 30s and 40s and 50s. And the, and the person that we pissed off in the showroom in, in 1999 <laughs> was the person that wasn't going to come back every few years yeah. for the rest of their lives. And it, it just seems so obvious to me, but, but for, for whatever reason, we have a very short, short-term focused uh, economic. Um, well, I'll, I'll explain it to you. It's simple. The, the private equity firm buys it. If they can get a bump in the earnings, no matter how short-term it is, uh, their goal is to then flip it off either to another private equity firm at a multiple of that higher value or make it go public on the stock market again, valued based on that most recent result. So it's it's not about somebody, you know, an individual person who comes along and wants to buy your car dealership, they're going to have share that same long-term thinking because maybe they intend to own it for 15 or 20 years. They're, they're also going to be invested in that. And so it's, it, it, it's what is the motivation of this new owner? Um, is it short or long-term or, or what is it that they're trying to do? And yeah. But anyway, that's neither here nor there. Um, Jeff, thank you very much for coming. So your website, where should people go? The book obviously is available on Amazon and from other bookstores everywhere. And where should people go if they want to learn more about your story and uh, what you're doing today? So that's jeffmoral.com. That's, and, and that's the best way to reach me. I love hearing from, from readers and listeners. So if you think that what I'm saying is crazy, or you want to you want to challenge me on particular on, on something that I've said, or or you want to agree, or or if you want to subscribe to my newsletter, you can do all that there. And if you're just interested in, in just kind of what an undealership looks like, that PlanetSubaru.com is probably a good link to to check out, and you, and you'll see that pretty quickly that that we're not doing business the the regular way. And I think there's a lot of opportunity for for people in other industries and other businesses to learn something there from us. That's awesome, Jeff. Thank you so much. And I'll remind everyone, if you haven't already, please head over to davidcbarnettlist.com. It's a place where you can sign up for my email list and you'll never miss a reminder or a link to any of my new videos. And I, I put stuff out every day about buying, selling, financing, managing, building small and medium-sized businesses. And if you liked the part of the discussion that was circulating around systems and how to organize your business, uh, then you might want to go out and check easysmallbizsystems.com. It's where you'll find information about one of my online courses, which is build a business that people will want to buy about how to make sure that your business is organized so that even if it has a big profit, a buyer won't ask themselves whether or not they can actually keep it going once they've taken over. Um, you'll have all those systems and processes and structures in place. And with that, we'll say see you later. Did I ask people to hit thumbs up, Jeff? I can't remember. You did. Yeah, a couple times, I think. Yeah, good, because I keep forgetting. So please, thumbs up. And thanks, everyone, for joining. And uh, it's, it's great to see you all. Um, Tactita says, thank you for the wisdom. And I'll thank you for your time tonight, Jeff, and for everyone who watched. And, uh, and we'll talk to you all later. Have a great night.